0: Hey everyone, Yin here. My guest today is Mark Martin. Mark is a veteran of the industrial manufacturing sector. He graduated with a bachelor's from the University of Oklahoma, got his MBA from MIT, and a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. Mark sits on the boards of the Association of Manufacturers Bay Area and the Corporation for Manufacturing Excellence. Currently, he is a regional director for advanced manufacturing workforce development for the Bay Area Community Colleges. He works with these community college manufacturing programs to help build upon and develop innovative approaches to train students in meeting the needs of the local manufacturing industries. We've talked about labor force needs in solar, HVAC, electrical work on the show in the past, but today we touch upon another critical sector of the skilled trades, manufacturing jobs. This means machining, welding, technical maintenance jobs, programmable logic control jobs, And we talk about why these jobs are so critical to climate tech solution scaling and how the state of California, through a role like Mark's, is helping match the talent supply to the growing demands for these skill sets. We get into a lot here, but before we get started.
1: I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey.
0: This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential
1: solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. With that, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it Ian.
0: So Mark, we were connected through Sam Steyer, who we've had the fortune of co-hosting a few episodes of the series with. So thank you, Sam, for connecting us today and really excited to get to know you and to talk about workforce development in the manufacturing sector. It's an area I certainly want to learn more about. But before we dive into what you spend your time on these days, I'd love to take a step back and just to get to know you and how you came to this phase of your career focusing what you're focusing on. And so perhaps we can just get started on how How did you develop your interest in manufacturing?
1: Yeah, I mean, wow, my interest in manufacturing evolved. I mean, when I was growing up, I tooled around some at home. I grew up in Oklahoma, built my bike and would play around with my bike. I did a little bit of my car, but I wasn't a heavy-duty mechanic kid. But I always liked design, innovation, and inventions, and and I like to keep up on the new technology. So as I was making my decision about what I wanted to do in school and in college, I chose engineering. And as I got involved in that and graduated with my mechanical engineering degree, I stepped into the role of kind of in the manufacturing world and learned how difficult it is to make things. And so that's just, you know, I kind of progressed from there. And then as I became a design engineer, part of that was how do you manufacture it? And so it just evolved that as I was designing things and getting more involved in the manufacturing, I recognized the innovation that is required in manufacturing and the troubleshooting and the challenges there. And so that kind of evolved into my focus on manufacturing. And then over the years, I've always been involved in education. And I kind of merged the two in this most recent role where I'm working in the manufacturing field, but really focused on getting more people educated in this area.
0: Let's jump into the role. So explain to me what your role entails.
1: Yeah. So there's 116 community colleges. It's the largest public educational organization in the country and you know one of the largest in the world as far as that there's over almost 2 million people in California community colleges. And so what I do is I focus on the Bay Area. So in the Bay Area there are 28 community colleges in the Bay Area from up to Santa Rosa down to Monterey out to Fairfield which has a Solano Community College and such. So there's 28 community colleges and my role is to focus on manufacturing workforce. So that means I'm there to help connect industry, with the community colleges, but also with K-12. I'm sure you know the tipping point, and many of your listeners know the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, which is the idea that there's kind of different ways of connecting and working with people. One of them is a connector, and so I act as a connector between different groups, the industry, K-12, and community colleges, and also kind of as what they call maven, as somebody who's there to help them with their questions or concerns or issues around manufacturing and, and how do we get more people into the manufacturing workforce?
0: Gotcha. So 116 community colleges throughout California, the Bay Correct. Area. Is
1: 28. Twenty eight in the Bay Area, yes.
0: So out of that two million pool, what percentage of students are in the Bay Area community colleges? It's
1: close to that twenty five percent.
0: And with the available paths you can go in a typical community college, what do those paths look like? I'm trying to understand kind of the funnel and what percentage of students go into these manufacturing specific disciplines.
1: Right. Well, the community colleges are, they offer every sort of degree from kind of your liberal arts transfer to your skilled trades. And so there's hundreds of different degree pathways you can take. There's a number of different what they call CTE or career technical education pathways paths, which the skilled trades fit under that. Also kind of health occupations and photography and culinary and a range of different kind of career pathways that only require kind of two years or a year or two certificate degrees fit into that CTE pathway. And so, you know, as part of that is there's quite a few manufacturing careers. And you had a question about percentages. There's hundreds of thousands of jobs available in the skilled trades in the Bay Area. The percentage of students, I don't know that off the top of my head.
0: Gotcha. Your role and the goal and maybe success looks like getting more people into manufacturing programs. And can you give us a sense of like just more tactically, what does that mean? Like, what are the actual skills in these manufacturing based programs that people are learning and building?
1: Right. So the types of jobs that we're talking about are industrial maintenance. So hydraulics, pneumatics, PLCs, which is kind of the industrial computers, electronics, electronics to machining, which is cutting metal, welding, joining metal, quality control, electronic technicians. So those sorts of skill sets are what is needed in these types of skilled trades manufacturing jobs. Gotcha.
0: So knowing that you focus specifically on the manufacturing programs, if we take a step back and look at the CTE, Career Technical Education programs as a whole, what other streams of programs are there that maybe your colleagues focus on just so we can have that broad understanding?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I came into working in the community college system a few years ago, you know, my background was in design and engineering and manufacturing. And when I was growing up, it was vocational education, which typically was kind of focused on the skilled trades, you know, carpentry, construction, machining, mechanics, auto mechanic, diesel mechanic, things like that. Really, the more encompassing term is career technical education, which is, you mentioned CTE, which is really kind of involves, again, anything that has that maybe, you know, one to two year training needed, which again, can be culinary, cosmetology, things like that, but also photography, nursing, you know, there's some nursing degrees that only require two years on the health side. There's some ICT types of jobs that are, you know, cybersecurity that might require only two years. And then you get into the more of the trades or the traditional vocational education is what I was thought of was when I was growing up, which gets into the building and construction trades. And then kind of the other skilled trades are again, machining, auto, things like that. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Super helpful ground, super helpful foundation setting, knowledge foundation setting for us. I had this question. I'm going to ask it. Why does your job exist, Mark? And has this role within the community colleges always existed? Or has it become a need in more recent years because we're seeing a dearth of talent going into these
1: areas? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my specific role has not existed in this form as, you know, this regional director in the area. About 12 years ago, they created these regional director type roles.
0: And by they, is that the state of California?
1: Yeah, the state of California. The state allocated money for these roles and said, we're going to do it in different sectors. So manufacturing, health, ICT, automotive, advanced transportation, things like that. So I just think they recognize that there could be somebody at the regional level, that could help pull people together, could look at things that weren't being filled or issues that might be out there that we could address that were more difficult if you had just the people at the, I don't want to say siloed, but you know, if you're at the, a college or at an organization, you're focused on your organization and maybe don't have as much time to kind of look at these overriding larger issues that affects across all the colleges. So.
0: Let's dive into what those issues are. Mm-hmm.
1: It can be anything from there might not be a program existing in an area of the region that is needed. So welding. Welding is an important skill that is needed throughout for manufacturers as well as the building and construction trades. So where are our welding programs? So we have a number of welding programs throughout the Bay Area colleges, but there's really not one in the San Jose area, Okay. So there's one in Hayward, there's, you know, the next one you get going south is all the way down at Hartnell or Cabrillo, which is in the South Bay, Monterey Peninsula area. So one of the things I'm looking at is, hey, can we develop and put in a welding program at one of the colleges somewhere in this San Jose area? Now that's something that if if you're at that college, you're at a college in that area, you don't have a welding program, you might not necessarily think, hey, I, we need to put in a welding program. And so it's, you know, I'm trying to look at what the needs are across our manufacturers throughout the Bay Area and see where there might be gaps that exist and what we can do then.
0: Gotcha. That's helpful. How do you get the feedback loop going with the industry to be able to say, oh, gosh, we need to put a welding program in Community College X?
1: Part of it stems from looking at what's called LMI or labor market information data, that you can get, you know, you can pull, there's various resources, but that's one of the things we use quite a bit in the community colleges is what are the needs? What are the labor markets that are out there? What are the demands going to be? So the Bureau of Labor Standards, you know, they publish information and there's various private organizations that pull together a variety of information about job postings. And then look, what is that demand currently? What do we project it's going to be in the future? And based on that, we can say what is the current supply that we have of programs and how many people can we graduate through these programs and we see where we might have some gaps.
0: And then how do you go about developing a new welding program at a community college?
1: Well, I mean, my role is to, you know, I don't work at a particular college is to kind of bring this up to a particular colleges and say, who might be interested? What can we do? This is why I think, you know, we might need this you know, is there a way to develop this new pathway? So one of the ones that I have done in the past was in quality control. So quality control is the basic, you know, you make something, how do you ensure that it meets the standards? And there's, you know, process for that around quality measurement. And there's, you know, certain skill sets that are needed. And we didn't have a program in the Bay Area that specifically focused on that. And so we looked and we talked to industry, brought them in as an advisory board, We walked through the steps of what the job requires, what skill sets are needed, and then worked on developing the classes for that. And as part of that, we brought in the community colleges at the same time and said, who's interested? Who already has something similar to this, like the machining programs, that teaches a lot of the skill sets already? And what else do we need to add to that to make it a quality control certificate? And that's one of the things we've done in the past.
0: And how long does that process take of doing that research, getting the feedback from industry, looking at the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and then going and getting people on the same page about what the need is to here, we have a net new program that students can enroll in?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the needs collection, you know, kind of using the design thinking process of going out and talking to the customers, which in this case are both the industry representatives who need these skilled trades employees, as well as the students themselves who might be going through it. But collecting that, getting the meetings together, getting everybody to kind of come together, put out their ideas, fleshing through that might take probably six, seven months of getting that process down and and then coming up with a, this is what we want the certificate to look like. And then it might be anywhere from six months to a year, to a year and a half to get the college to. Run through the approval process and then be able to get, by the time you can find somebody to teach it and then schedule it for a particular semester, you know, it can be one to two years after that, just depending. Gotcha.
0: Still faster than I was imagining. I was imagining this being, you know, a a, like a five to seven year process of getting through a lot of tape.
1: Yeah, no, there can be tape. (laughs) It depends on how closely it's aligned with an existing program. So as I said, quality control is kind of very closely aligned with machining in the sense of a lot of the things that you're measuring and the tools that you're using to measure are already being done, used in machining. And it's not creating from whole cloth a new type of pathway, but it can take a while. And there's a good reason for that. Sometimes people, I haven't really heard it myself, but some people said, you know, there's Criticism of the community colleges—they can't move fast enough. You know, the fact is, is we are a little bit of a moderation that we want to try to latest skill sets incorporated into our classes, which I think we do. But to create a whole new program, you know, requires a lot of money to set that up and make sure it's sustainable. So we want to make sure that it's something that's going to be long-lived. It's not going to be something that only a few companies need and aren't going to need it after two or three years. So there's kind of a process to make sure that that is well-needed program.
0: On the financial side, in propping up a a net new program, whether it's adjacent to an existing program or truly just from the ground up, it doesn't exist, but there's a need for it to exist. What does that funding piece look like and how much does the state actually help with those programmatic development financial needs?
1: I mean, the community colleges are funded through Various forms, but basically state funding. And so they encourage that. They encourage us to look and see what new programs we have, new programs being approved all the time in the Bay Area. And so, yeah, the state pays for that. So, you know, you just have to go out and spend that effort to collect the data, work with companies, and submit a new program.
0: Cool. I think we did a quintuple click into this one gap area, which is in your role, figuring out where there are programmatic gaps in the community, college pathways vis-a-vis the local industry and the needs of manufacturing. What other gaps are there that you have to address in, in this
1: role? You mean programmatic or just in general?
0: In general. So like one of the things that you do is like programs and what needs to exist and making sure that those conversations pick up and result in development. What other areas do you spend time focusing on?
1: There's a lot of gap in just knowledge about what's being offered and what's out there. You know, sometimes, and you may have experienced this, you know, since you talk with a lot of different people, the internet is great. It does not solve all information problems, amazingly. I mean, it's very easy to go find stuff, but it's there's still that human part of the interaction and connection that is useful in making things happen. So, you know, I still occasionally run into companies that I didn't realize that college had a machining program, right? And you know, all you got to do is type, you know, go in and look and maybe search a little bit specifically for machining program in this particular area. So they might not be aware of it. Or, I, you know, I didn't realize that you had these programs at these colleges or these resources at the college to help us out. So I think part of the gap is acting. And again, that, you know, I mentioned before that connector position of helping people realize what is out there, making them aware of it, and then showing them how it can help them. If they're at a company, how it can help them find the people they need. If they're at K 12, help teachers help guide their students to recognizing that these are good career pathways. So there's just all that sorts of kind of connecting people with the information that they need and with other people as well.
0: Yeah. So programmatic development being one and then just general awareness building
1: yeah, across yeah.
0: industry and student-based and community colleges.
1: Yes. Well, and then the gap between where my role looks across the system and can maybe find those gaps, be it programmatic, be it lack of communication that are out there across the region that others aren't maybe seen because their role is more focused on their college or high school.
0: Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. So let's focus on that that high school piece. I've been talking to a bunch of people on the topic of workforce development, and I asked the question, like, if you can wave a magic wand and make anything happen, like, how can we get more young talent into the trades and into the, the skilled labor workforce? And the consistent answer I get is, we just need to make people aware of the fact that these are viable career paths and to remove the stigma associated with some of these types of roles. And that starts with the middle school, as early as middle school education and high school education. And, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you had classes like SHOP and vocational programs in high school. And I feel like in the past you know, couple of decades, they've waned in popularity. And so what's your take on how we can approach the younger people entering to the workforce in addressing the skilled trades as a viable career path?
1: Yeah, I think it's exposure to it. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and there were shop programs in my school. I actually didn't take any, but I was aware of them and I knew people who did. I looked at the people that my parents knew and there was an electrician, you know, there was somebody who worked at, who ran a gas station. There were more people who worked kind of with their hands manually and did stuff. And so I was aware that that was a career pathway that you could take. Mm -hmm. And now there are fewer of those programs, the shop programs in schools. So people aren't aware of them and they don't see it necessarily as a pathway that is viable, that is something of interest to them. So they're not exposed to it. And so because of that, they have a hard to conceive of what that might look like. What do you watch on TV? You watch, you know, lawyer programs, you watch doctor programs, maybe you kind of get an engineering program. If you watch Star Trek and Scotty and, you know, being able to fix things and, but you don't, you know, you don't get a lot of skilled trades programs going on there. You know, there's some of the reality things that kind of cover it to some degree. So that's helpful, but it's just like, you don't know about it. So if you don't know about it, how are you going to recognize that this might be something you would like? So I think that's the thing. It's how do you get people exposed to it? Putting more shop programs back in the schools would be nice, but it's difficult. It's expensive. Over the, the last 40 years, people have really pushed everybody's going to go to a four-year school, a university. And I think there's a little drawback from that, recognizing the cost and not everybody finds good jobs. So, But how do we let people know that manufacturing and the skilled trades are viable career pathways? with living wage jobs.
0: Especially, yeah, with living wage jobs. If you had a magic wand, what would happen to help that along?
1: I think that every school would have a career exploration class that made sure that you, they recognize that the hands-on skilled trades or engineering even, you know, which is hands-on really as well, exists. And let them see what that is and also talk to them about what those career pathways are. And then from there, it could be you know more opportunities for kids to do these activities, either in classes or outside of classes at summer programs, just kind of get exposed to it and let them know that this can be something, if they really like it, this could be a, a pathway for them. Because that's the key thing, helping people find what they like. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know, I know lawyers and I know probably more lawyers than anybody, but engineers who have gone through that pathway and then decided that this is maybe not what they really wanted to do. And you know that pathway of going through law school or engineering served them well in a number of ways, but it wasn't their final passion. And so how can we help people find that passion so that if they know they love to work with their hands, they choose that because they will be more successful at it. One of the teachers at one of the colleges here was a German literature major. He was a liberal arts major and went to UC Berkeley and ended up taking a machining class and really liked it. And he went back to school and eventually got a career in machining. He liked it so much that he started teaching and is now the lead instructor at the college, full-time faculty at the college. And so, you know, he found that passion in his life, not super late, but, you know, a little later than he might have. And so now he's really enjoying what he does. So.
0: That's great. I recently interviewed a journalist at least 10, maybe 15 years writing for various publications and who has recently transitioned to becoming an electrician. For the same reasons, this is what I love to do is what I look forward to spending time on. So I think that's a good reminder for folks wherever they are in their, in their career path, be it in high school or in their fifties or sixties. Okay. I want to change lanes and talk about the intersection of manufacturing, jobs and manufacturing and climate. So. What do you see are the overlaps between the manufacturing trades and the jobs that people are getting trained for and this topic of climate change and climate tech that I'm sure is bubbling up more now than before?
1: Right. Well, it's the Bay Area is, you know, it's been a center of innovation for decades. And what I'm finding is that I've seen it around here as well with climate companies, climate focused companies is the small companies are cropping up and showing up focusing on the climate issues is pretty interesting. So and part of that is when you're developing things for climate change, obviously there's software and process methods to help reduce a carbon output and things like that. But most of it is technology, is new hardware technology, ways of generating electricity or reducing it or, or different approaches to mining materials that are used in those technologies. You know, how can we create that hardware it's such a way to help impact climate change and that requires technicians it's interesting i was a few years ago i was up in seattle and i was at the aviation museum up there and i was walking through and they had pictures of robert goddard who developed the first liquid fuel rocket back in the 20s and you know he's a phd and they had these pictures of him and it was robert goddard with machinists and then robert goddard with you know his shop machinists as he was or standing around their liquid fuel rocket And it just indicated to me how important those skilled trades are to making this equipment. And that I, as an engineer, learned that very early on, is that the skill sets that they bring to it can kind of make a very important difference about whether or not you can get that product made, that design made properly, and out to market on time. So if you don't have good skilled tradespeople behind you, you may not meet the market needs. And so we're seeing a lot of these companies come to us and say, hey, we need skilled trades folks, electronic technicians, machinists or otherwise to help us develop our products. And so that's kind of the overlap So you're developing this product. You need the skilled trades people.
0: You know, I think climate is a moving atoms problem to solve at the end of the day. You need physical infrastructure, machines, devices that is going to help us sequester carbon for engineering solutions to help us get off our dependency on fossil fuels. And so there's just a lot of different types of physical things that need to be designed, cut, built, maintained. And so what you're focusing on is helping with the labor supply of people that can do all of those things because without you know, physical infrastructure changes, climate is not going to get solved.
1: One of the things that people, are you an engineer? I'm not, but thank okay. you for even thinking that. I you
0: know. <laughs> no, no. I mean,
1: because you know, as an engineer, and you know, I said I've got a lot of degrees in engineering. But the thing is, is it amazes me is the skilled tradespeople who have gone through their focus on their specialties was the amount of knowledge they have. I mean, I, I have all these degrees, but I still go into a machine shop. You know, I watch what they do and talk, and the knowledge that they have. Which is critical to creating these products. And so, as an engineer who is, you know, we have all these engineers working, developing these new climate technologies, which is great. We obviously need that, but they need the skilled tradespeople as well. And one of the stories that I find very kind of funny to recount is my wife actually went to MIT as an engineer, right? So, MIT, one of the preeminent, you know, engineering universities in the country, if not the world. And she had a friend who went there. He graduated, went to work for a large company. So he was developing something. this MIT engineer. He was developing a product. He needed a little fixture for the product to be made. And so he drew up something and sent it to his machine shop at the company and said, hey, we need this. And the guy said, that's going to be kind of tough. It's going to be expensive. And he goes, no, 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 this is what I need. And so what he needed, he needed something about 250 millimeters by 250 millimeters. And it was machined and stuff. So that's about 10 inches by 10 inches. So, you know fairly large size except on his hand sketch he had put 250 mils now mil is a thousandth of an inch so instead of a 10 by 10 inch thing that they were building which is you know that's that's pretty he was telling them to build a quarter inch by a quarter inch thing that was shrunk down to that size, which is really difficult to make. It's easier to make something big. So he cut it back. And it's this little, if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, where they they, they send it out and they make the wrong dimensions. <laughs> and so he's this little, he this, oh, and so he tells the story of, you know, look, this, you know, me, this engineer, not knowledgeable, didn't listen to the skilled trades folks, the machinist who said, you sure this is the right thing? And this was his little mistake. So but then overall the knowledge they bring and can help with on creating things is is vital. And so that's that's why they're very important.
0: When you look at the labor market demands over the next Let's say two decades, and knowing that these are two critical decades for us to really, you know, hone in on technologies and scale those technologies to sequester, to mitigate, to help with resiliency building across just our world. What are the two or three most anticipated needs in manufacturing
1: that you see? You know, I was looking at the labor market information, and I think one of the things is, you know, we we obviously hear a lot about automation. And so what automation does is typically get rid of the lower skill level manual jobs that don't require a lot of training. But what we will need then is people to install and maintain those. So industrial maintenance you know, is kind of a career pathway, which it kind of encompasses, you know, there's also kind of robotics and automation. And the question we all have is, is well, how different is that? There's kind of this encompassing thing. Anything dealing with automation, either you're installing it, you're repairing it, You're maintaining it. So that type of career is going to be important. And also then just machinists and welders. You know, you still have to cut metal. You still have to join metal. And between the manufacturing side of things and the infrastructure side of things, these are going to be huge requirements as you start to put in more charging stations. Obviously, you need the electricians. You need the companies that are building the charging stations, which need machinists, which need welders, which needs electronic techs, which, you know, need industrial maintenance techs. And so it's a huge, huge need for these types of positions, and it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow, both based on those needs, you know, with the recent funding for the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA and the CHIPS Act, along with the retirements that are coming because the baby boomers are, have been hitting that retirement age.
0: What do those numbers look like, the people who are trading out of the manufacturing sector and the people that are coming in?
1: Yeah. I just had a talk the other day. I think it was, you know, there were, I want to say it's like 70 million baby boomers and there's, you're starting to drop retiring for the last 10 years or so. And I think the ones replacing them kind of at the millennial <laughs> Gen Z, I can't remember are fewer, you know, by 10 million or so. And so there's going to be a huge, you know, these baby boomers who are holding these skilled trades positions are retiring There's fewer people to replace them, both from an overall population demographic that you can pull from and just maybe an interest level as well, because those younger kids are not as aware of these types of positions. So.
0: Gotcha. I'm thinking about, you know, we've been talking about California, Bay Area specifically, if we zoom out to look at the U.S. and we're seeing some policy changes happening on really um, trying to stimulate the skills trades, workforce development. I'm curious if you've looked into any international case studies. I'm thinking about, you know, countries that are known for manufacturing might, China, Japan, Germany, in addition to the U.S. Any learnings from those economies on the you know private sector side or the policy side that we can take?
1: So first off, the hiring and finding people in the skilled trades is not just a Bay Area or California thing, which is, you know, there's concern about that because of the cost of housing and how much it costs to live in the Bay Area. It's across the US. I mean I, I hear of it from the East Coast, Austin area, other areas that are there having problems finding the people for these jobs. Internationally, I think one of the things we've worked on is apprenticeships, which an apprenticeship is basically what they call also earn and learn, but basically basically idea that you bring someone in to the company, you train them, you mentor them, you kind of rotate them through different skill sets. They also typically they're required to kind of take outside training as well. So a lot of times it's at the community colleges and that sort of to build your core skill set of skilled tradespeople from within versus trying to just say, hey, we need a machinist. Let's go hire one. Say, hey, we need a machinist. It's going to take them a few years to train them, but let's get started now and either hire somebody you know, from within the company or bring somebody in at a lower level. And so I think that's one of the models that has been around. I mean, we've been doing that in the US for, you know, hundreds of years as well, but is m- much more established in some of the European countries.
0: I've heard of the learn and earn model with being an electrician, you do your basic training, and then you just start going to job sites and you learn with someone who's had years of experience, but you get paid for it once you right, know that, right. that, that the yeah. economic mobility is really important if we want to get more people into the pipeline so that you know we don't end up with a generation of young people that want to be influencers, which, which is what I heard is the number one desirable job in, in a recent poll that was done with teenagers. Anyhow, so it sounds like countries that, like Germany and Japan, have robust apprenticeship programs in many skills trades beyond the obvious ones that we hear about?
1: You know, I'm not as familiar with Japan. Germany certainly does. England. Germany probably has the most well-established and well-known one, even among the European countries. It is interesting because we assume that kind of all European countries might be that way. just But, you know, like Switzerland wasn't that way. Germany has had it for a long time, certainly after the World War II not earlier, but Switzerland established a much more apprenticeship like system in the I think is the mid eighties. So they will come over and talk to us about it, establishing that. And California is really focused on working on apprenticeships. There's a lot of funding coming through. I work on it quite a lot. And I think it's a great pathway to, to help people move into the trades and get them more interested. In so
0: yeah. And so I'm conscious of time. And as we wrap up, I wanted to get your take on what do you think are the most effective tailwinds that we're going to see in the manufacturing trades over the next couple of decades?
1: Well, from an overall sector standpoint, I mean, there's, then I'll talk about the workforce, but yeah, obviously there's the need for work on changes in our infrastructure to mitigate climate change. So again, with the funding that has recently passed, federally, And you know, I think the overall consensus that we need to make these changes, there's gonna be a lot of move towards electrification, carbon capture, technologies around that. So that's gonna drive a lot of innovation and a lot of new manufacturing because we're gonna have to replace that infrastructure. And then again, overall the replacement of the infrastructure will drive the need for these jobs. And so that's kind of a tailwind pushing it. And that along with the fact that we're having a lot of people retiring mean that we'll need more people moving into these positions. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities. So there's a tailwind in that respect that the demand will drive that these jobs will pay well, and that they'll get more people interested. And as people become more aware of these jobs and and what kind of lifestyle they offer, and I think it'll grow in interest among the students.
0: Well, great. Thank you for spending time with me today. I certainly learned a whole bunch. I really appreciate you shining more light on a different
1: area of the skills
0: trades that we haven't really focused on. So really appreciate it.
1: Definitely. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at MCJPod. For weekly climate op-eds,
0: jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe.